How many of you know that a bull is a very powerful animal? Maybe one of the things you enjoy doing is watching professional bull riding. I don't know. Uh, but a bull is a very powerful animal and by nature are very uncontrollable. But years ago, I mean eons, uh, farmers as well as merchants who wished to travel long distances discovered that they could manage large beasts like a bull or a camel or an ox by placing a ring in that animal's nose. And when someone pulls on that nose ring, it is so painful that that bull or that beast can be led anywhere without a fight. The bull becomes compliant and will do almost anything to avoid discomfort. Without his consent, he has become ensnared to the will of man. You see, God put it in the animals of this world. He put one thing in them after the flood. You know what he put in animals? The fear of man. That's why you can't just walk up to some animals, because by nature, they're afraid of you. They have to be tamed or domesticated, or they have to be controlled with bit, bridle, or nose rings. And then they come under, without their consent, to the will of man. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare. Now, it's interesting that that word snare in the Hebrew, in which it was written originally, means a noose for catching animals, or by implication, a hook or ring for the nose. The fear of man is like you being hooked in the nose and being led without your consent to go everywhere that other person wants, you to take, wants to take you because you're scared of them. You fear them. You say, well, I'm not scared of any person. I don't, I'm not afraid. No, but we talked about last week what the fear of man looks like. We looked at all of that. It's the being gripped with this overwhelming desire to please people or afraid that you might lose their approval. And we will do almost anything to keep it. And that's like a ring in our nose. The fear of man. God didn't put the fear of man in the human realm. He put the fear of man in the animal realm. You're not an animal. You're man. You're woman. You're not to have the fear of man. Tonight, Today, starting today, I want to look at uh, some of the snares that result from the fear of man. In other words, some of the behavior that you fall into, that we fall into. And by the way, all of us, we're not animals, but all of us, the Scripture says, are like beasts that perish. Now, we're not beasts, but we sometimes all act like a beast under the spell of the fear of man. There's not a one of you here. I don't care how big and strong and bold you think you are. And a lot of times you get that way because you have climbed that ladder of success or you have intimidated people to the point where you think you're the one leading them. But 
Really, that also is an expression of the fear of man because you're afraid to have any kind of close friendships or you're afraid to have a teachable spirit. And so you feel that you have to dominate people. And that's just another expression of the fear of man. So I want to talk about some snares uh, that result from the fear of man. How we can be led like a bull by the ring in our nose. First one we find in Genesis chapter 10. In verses 10, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10 through 13. I mentioned this last week, but I want to look at it a little bit closer today. Genesis 12, 10 talks about Abraham. He said there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarah his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. What's he saying to his wife? It's, it's better be what every man's saying to his wife. Honey, you look good. You are beautiful. So Abraham had that part right, didn't he? And, uh, and by the way, if, if you're a big, strong, strapping man and you don't think you have problems with the fear of man, my question is, are you married? <laughs> I've seen big, grown men just wilt at the sign of their wife's disapproval. So, uh, anyway, men, he said, Sarah, you are beautiful. But that caused them to fear. As they were going into Egypt, he said, therefore it will happen when we go to Egypt and they see you that they will say, this is his wife and they will kill me. But they'll let you live. Please say you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Abram's heart was gripped by fear. As they were about to enter Egypt, she was, Sarah was so beautiful that he thought that they would kill him and take her. So he told Sarah to lie. You see, one of the traps, one of the snares that we fall into as a result of the fear of man is deceit. That is, we will lie to gain an advantage or to avoid a disadvantage, or punishment, or some negative consequence. And if we don't outright lie, we will at least cover the truth. Or we will operate deceitfully without ever having to speak the lie. And therefore we think we're being honest because the word, the lies, never actually came from our mouth, but we act in a deceitful way. Or we don't say everything we should say, or we, we say more than we ought to say. We lie, we're deceitful. We weave a web of deceit in order to, for people to like us or for people to not hurt us. And this was the case of Abraham. He was under the spell of the fear of man. You see, what happens is when we're under the spell of the fear of man, we are double-minded. And the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. In fact, the Bible says in the book of James, don't let that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord. But see, a double-minded man is forever changing directions to suit the circumstance. I remember in seminary I had to take a course called Situational Ethics. That was the one course I had the most problems with, not because it was hard, it was because I disagreed with the basic premise of the course. Is that 
in some situations, you do this thing, that's, and in other situations, you do this thing, and it may be different based on your situation. Well, that flies in the face of someone like me, because to me, I believe you do the right thing no matter the situation. So situational ethics comes into play with the fear of man. When you're with this group of people, you act like this, and you say this, and you do this. But when you're with this group of people that may be completely different, then you act a different way. You say something differently. And so you're living a lie. You're a two-faced hypocrite because of the fear of man. You're living a deceitful life. And it's all because you're addicted to approval. All of us are afflicted with that. And we must confess it. And we must turn from it. Because there's only one person who deserves that kind of respect. And that's God. You see, this kind of life is infectious. It affects the generations below us. You see, it's not too many chapters later in Genesis chapter 26 that we see that Isaac did the same thing with his wife, Abraham's son. He was going also into a foreign country. And he noticed, too, that his wife was beautiful and said as much. And then when it says, when the king of, or the men of Gerar, this foreign country, asked Isaac about his wife, that Isaac said, she's my sister. And the scripture says, for he feared to say, she is my wife, lest the men of the place should kill him because of Rebekah, because she was beautiful to look upon. You see how infectious this lifestyle can become? It's an inherit, almost like an inherited trait. Our children observe it in our lives. And they too become addicted to this approval. And they, they too learn how to lie or to cover the truth or to live in a deceitful manner with different groups of people so that they will win their approval. We need to live truthful lives. Not lives seeking for man's approval, but a life that craves the approval of God. As the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds need to be reprogrammed, not geared to what does so-and-so think or how will this group of friends respond. You see, we conform ourselves to those things because of the fear of man. And they become like a ring in our nose and we will go wherever that group or wherever that person tells us because we crave that person's approval. And we're living a lie. And he says, don't be conformed to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's one way that I know to renew your mind and that is bathe it daily in the Word of God. And it begins with a confession. Lord, I am eat up with the fear of man. You've never called it that before. But that's what it is. You could call it approval junkies. That's what it is. Peer pressure, that's what it is. The fear of man. He says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Seek to be acceptable and approved unto God as workmen that need not be ashamed. So the fear of man, one of the snares is we live a life of deceit. Another one is cowardice. 
were cowards. In John chapter 3, we read, we're introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus. You know probably the story of Nicodemus. We know who Nicodemus was. He was a, uh, a Pharisee. He was one of the rulers of the religious sect called the Pharisees. That's what it says in John 3, 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. It says that he came to Jesus by night. And he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. You know, it would be interesting if he, he says, we know. I wonder what, what Nicodemus himself thought. I think later we, we do learn. I know later we do learn what Nicodemus thought. Nicodemus began to realize that Jesus was who he said he was and, and became a believer. But here, he's very generic in his approach. He's coming to Jesus by night, and he says, We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. In these two verses, we learn a lot about Nicodemus, that he comes to Jesus under the shadow of night. He comes to Jesus secretly, privately. You see, the Pharisees rejected Jesus. They had been trying to get rid of him because they were, first of all, jealous of him. But uh, it was, he was teaching, they thought, some new spurious doctrine. But it was Nicodemus' trepidation that caused him to wait until nightfall to approach Christ. Many of the Jewish religious authorities, we read later in John chapter 12, verse 42, they believed on Jesus. But look what it says in that passage. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. I imagine that was Nicodemus' problem. He was coming to Jesus by night. He, he wanted to know more about this man, but he didn't want anybody to know he wanted to know more about Jesus. And he came secretly because he didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. He didn't want to be expelled from his position of authority in his religion. He feared the loss of status, as well as these other leaders in John 12, 42, more than what they desired from and believed about Jesus Christ. They feared the loss of status. They feared the loss of position. They feared their the loss of their cool reputation. They became cowards. In John chapter 9, we read of a story or, or the account of a blind man that Jesus healed him with the clay. And then Jesus gave this man the instructions to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the blind man followed through and he was miraculously healed on the Sabbath day. Well, that just threw the Pharisees in a tizzy. And uh, some of the religious leaders began to believe on Jesus, and some did not. So there was now a division. And they were divided in their opinion as to whether this man had really even been blind before. So they called in his parents. And here's the, where we pick up in John 9, 20. His parents answered these leaders and said, We know that this, our son, was born blind. But how he sees now, we don't know. Or who hath opened his eyes, we don't know. He's old enough. Ask him. Let him speak for himself. These words 
His parents spoke because they feared the Jews. I believe his parents knew exactly what happened. I believe his parents fully knew it was Jesus and believed that he had the power to heal their son. And he did. But they feared the Jews. They would not openly confess that because they were afraid, if you read the next phrase, for the Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. They feared losing or being excommunicated from their religion. They feared their removal from the house of worship more than their banishment from heaven. Which is more important? You see how cowardice, the fear of man, leads us to being cowards? I mean, when the fear of reprisal is greater than the fear of God, decisions, poor decisions will be made. And listen, every one of us here, every one of us here, if you're a Christian, I guarantee you, you're guilty of this one. I know you are. I am. How many times have you had opportunities to speak up for truth, for righteousness, for Christ? How many witnessing opportunities, one-on-one, have you had the opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus Christ, but you were afraid of what those around who might hear you would think of you? You were afraid of what your boss or your supervisor or your coworkers would think of you. Was this appropriate? Is it inappropriate? You were afraid even of what that person you would talk to would think of you. Every one of us has fallen in this area if you're a Christian. If you've been saved long enough, you're guilty of being a spiritual coward and not confessing Christ. I think the greatest example, we'll probably look at this example later uh, in another message as we talk about the snares snares of uh, the fear of man, is Peter. Remember Peter? Just think about this. At one moment, when the soldiers armed with swords and torches came to arrest Jesus, I can imagine Peter let out a battle cry, drew his sword and swung with all of his might to decapitate anybody within the path of that sword. Luckily, he missed all the necks and caught an ear and cut the servant of the high priest's ear, Malchus was his name, cut his ear off. Probably because Malchus ducked just in time. I don't think Peter was aiming for his ear. Peter probably wasn't that good with a sword. He was a fisherman, not a fighter. But hours later, he was standing at the fire, warming himself. And a little girl said, I recognize you. You were with him. And three times, back to back, and the third time with cursing and swearing, he denied that he knew Jesus Christ. Peter, the coward. Whereas just a few hours before, he would defend Jesus to the death, even confess that he would die for Jesus, and proved it in the garden of Gethsemane. But then just a few hours later, a little servant girl drew out his cowardice. Don't be too hard on Peter. There's a bunch of Peters in this room. Including me. You see what the fear of man will do to us? It's a snare. And we know 
that Jesus said, if we confess him before men, he will confess us before our fathers. But if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before the Father. We know that, but we still operate like cowards when we have the opportunity to confess and profess Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're approval junkies. We want the approval of man. We crave it more than we crave the approval of God. And that's a sin. And it's one that we have to confess and that we have to repent of. And I believe it's probably the worst sin in our nation. You say, wait, I can think of a ton more. Yeah, I know what the ones y'all want to name. I'd name those too because they're sins you don't commit. It's the somebody else's sins that you want to... These big grandiose sins. This sin right here. The fear of man. That's kept Christians quiet. That's kept Christians silent. That's kept Christians in the church house. Is why our country is in the shape it's in today. For when good men do nothing... What happens? Evil prevails. Why would good men do nothing? Why? We know the truth. Why would we do nothing? Because we're scared to death of what they, whoever they is, might do to us. That's why I think it's probably the worst sin in our nation. But we don't want to take the blame for that. We want to blame it on the abortion problem. We want to blame it on the homosexual problem. We want to blame it on the violent problem. We want to blame it on the race problem. We want to blame it on the immigration problem. You can blame whoever you want, but the fear of man is what kept the church quiet when the church should have been loud. We were scared. Lastly, today, we talked about the snare of deceit, the snare of cowardice. Lastly, today, in Exodus chapter 32, we see the snare of compromise. Exodus 32, 1 through 4. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he's up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now, can you imagine? They had just come out of Egypt. They had just crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They had seen God drown the, Israel, the, the Egyptians. They had seen God deliver them uh, through the Red Sea. And here they are saying uh, to Aaron, Aaron, make us gods. Moses has been gone all this time. We don't know what's become of him. And, and just make us some gods, plural, little g. And Aaron said to them, all right, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, fast forward to verse 21. And Moses said, Now Moses comes down. God tells him up on the mountain, Here's what the people are doing, Moses. Now go get back down there. 
So Moses comes back down. He sees all this going on. And he's now addressing Aaron. He says to Aaron, What does people do to you that you've brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this gold calf came out. That's exactly what it says. Ain't my fault, Moses. So what did Aaron? Now, who is Aaron? Y'all know who Aaron is? Aaron's the brother of Moses. He's the mouthpiece for Moses. Remember? Way back in Genesis chapter 3. And he is the first in the line of many high priests. He's the representative of God to the people and of the people to God. Here's Aaron. And because the people got a little upset, got their feathers ruffled, got to griping and complaining a little bit too much, and it started bothering Aaron. And they said, here's what we want you to do, Aaron. We want you to make us some gods. And so Aaron compromised as a leader. He compromised because the people were griping. Listen, if you want me to compromise and if you want your way, you better get a new pastor. Because I'm not going to, if God willing, with God as my help, I'm not going to compromise the word of God because we have some griping people. Do you want me to? Do you expect me to? And they wanted Aaron, make us some gods. So Aaron compromised, collected their gold, and molded it. And then he basically denied his, his actions and said, I just threw it in the fire and this golden calf like it walked out on its own. Aaron chose to respond to the clamor of the people instead of standing up for the truth. Listen, it's easy to bend to the will of man. It's easier sometimes, you think it is, you think it's easier sometimes to bend to the wishes of, uh, and the pressures of man than stand for the uncompromising truth of God's word. But the consequences are devastating. You see, there are, there are churches, perhaps. I don't go to them, so I don't know who they are. There are pastors in pulpits, perhaps, who bend the Bible to fit the prevailing consensus of the people, who tickle the ears of the church, Paul told Timothy, in the last days, scoffers will come. And they will want you to scratch them behind the ears. Now, I'm putting that as a paraphrase. Because that's what makes sense to me. He says they, he, they want you, they will have itching ears. In other words, the inference is, they want you to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. It'd be like an old dog coming up to you, an old cat. Cats don't need much attention. But one thing I know cats love, and I, because we have one, an outdoor cat, they like to be rubbed behind the ears. An old dog does too. And old church members do too. <laughs> Y'all love to hear what you want to hear. What makes you feel good? I like that too. 
But we cannot, as God's people, compromise God's truth. The longer you live, the longer I occupy this pulpit, or any pulpit, on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, the more pressure will be brought against us to compromise the truth. And it's not the time for us to bow to the prevailing winds of whatever somebody wants us to say, say or do. So three traps we can fall into. Compromise. And we could put that in all kinds of categories. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I wasn't one for as long as Bobby has been one. He's actually been one twice as more than twice as long as I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for six years. But I remember telling my young people, you better make up your mind that you're going to be pure before you go on your first date. And be rock solid and accountable. Because the time to make the decision to be pure is not in the back seat when the heat's already been turned up and the fire's already been lit. Because by that time, it's too late. Because if you, you're going to compromise in that situation more often than you're going to win. You need to make that decision up front. What about at work, guys and girls, ladies and gentlemen? Your boss is bearing down on you to do what you know. He's asked you to do something under the table. He's asked you to do something a little unethical because it, it affects the bottom line and it also affects your job. And maybe he's even weighed your job in front of you and, and said if you don't do this, then you don't have a job here. What's more important to you? Truth? Or paycheck. We could go back and look at examples like Daniel we looked at a few weeks ago. Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo. The pressure. The screws were turned tight on them. The pressure was put on. And they didn't cave in. Yeah, they got thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. But God brought them through it. Yeah, you may have to lose your job. You may have to lose your position, but God will bring you through it. And he will honor those who honor him. We cannot live in the fear of man. It will lead us to compromise. It will lead us to cowardice. It will lead us to live a life of deceit. And no one is so qualified and so established in their position that we're immune from the fear of man and its innumerable concessions. The reason we have so much fear of man is because we have so little fear of God. James Foster said, cultivate a supreme reverence for God. Because these two, the fear of man and the fear of God, are absolutely inconsistent and cannot subsist together. You cannot fear God and fear man at the same time. But most of us live in the fear of man camp. And we say we fear God, but we don't in practical, everyday life. And that's what's wrong with our country and that's what's wrong with our churches and that's what's wrong with our corporations we need christian statesmen and stateswomen we accuse the politicians of bowing to the wishes of the highest bidder 
and we don't even see that we're doing the same thing. We're just not getting paid for it. We're bowing to the wishes of the people we crave approval from, and we don't really care what God thinks. The fear of man and the fear of God are like oil and water. They don't mix. The only cure is confession and repentance. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Our God is faithful. Right, choir? Didn't they you just sing that? Didn't we just hear that? Our God is faithful. If we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us. And it starts with an honest confession before Him. God, I admit, I see, I am eat up with the fear of man. And I cannot fear you as long as I fear man. And God, I want to get over that. And so it begins with an honest confession. There are steps to take after that. We'll talk about some of those in days to come. But I would say get away from the fear of man and get in the Word of God. And you'll begin to see stories like, and it's funny how all these men we're talking about, these were men of God. Abraham, Aaron. These were, Nicodemus was a religious leader. These were religious men of God. So none of us are immune. But if we'll stop and confess and forsake our sin and get back to the Word of God and a living relationship with Him and ask God, Lord, next time I'm tempted to lie or be deceitful, to cave under pressure and compromise or keep my mouth shut because and act like a coward, would you throw it up to me like a red flag so that I'd recognize it? Because sometimes we're so accustomed to the fear of man, we don't even realize it. We don't realize what we're doing. It's like after a while, that bull with a ring in his nose, he, he knows after a while, I don't want that ring to be tugged on, so I'm just going to do what they want me to do anyway. After a while, it quits bothering us. And we just go along to get along. We don't even realize we're doing it. Well, that's what this series of messages is about. I'm pulling on that nose ring a little bit. I'm helping you see that it's painful that there are some consequences. And only, the, only Jesus Christ can, can break that nose ring, can break that bondage that we're in to the fear of man. But it starts with an honest confession. Would you bow with me?